We are very privileged uh, to have uh, with us uh, the Chief Judge today of the uh, Ninth Circuit, uh, Alex Krasinski. Um, I first met uh, Alex uh, when I was um, not, not through um, my wife, uh, although both she and Alex uh, were born in Romania and left Romania in 1961 during the Ceausescu era. Uh, but I met him. Before. No, was that that was before Ceausescu? Oh, I, that's right. A brief a brief thaw uh, in, in in the communist era, nonetheless. Um, it's a good thing they left when they did. They might not have been able to do so later. Uh, but I first met uh, Alex uh, when uh, I was uh, in the Reagan administration at the Office of Personnel Management, serving Don Devine over there. And Alex at that time was the special counsel for the Merit Systems Protection Board which was a counterpart, uh, so to speak, of the Office of Personnel Management dealing with civil service issues. Um, Alex uh, is currently, as I said, the uh, a judge on the uh, DC, uh, or rather on the uh, Ninth Circuit. Uh, he became uh, chief judge in November uh, of 2007. Before his appointment to the appellate bench, uh, he served as uh, Chief Judge of the U.S. Claims Court from 1982 until 1985. Um, he uh, also served in private practice at Covington and Burling uh, and for, uh, Forey, uh, Goldbert, Singer, and Gellis. Uh, he received his A.B. from UCLA in 1972 and his J.D. from UCLA uh, Law School. Uh, following law school, he served as uh, law clerk for Circuit Judge Anthony Kennedy on the Ninth Circuit, and then uh, clerk for Supreme Court Chief Justice Warren E. Berger. He's been a great friend of the Cato Institute. In fact, he wrote the foreword to our book that was published in 1987 by the George Mason University Press on economic liberties and the judiciary. Uh, he has um, uh, been also, he has also spoken at Cato uh, at several times since then. So without further ado, would you please welcome Judge Alex Kaczynski. Thank you, Roger. And good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm really uh, pleased and honored to be back uh, here at, uh, in Washington and at Cato seeing so many of my friends. I'm a great friend and admirer of Cato and uh, the philosophy of liberty for which uh, the organization stands and strives for. So I uh, take every opportunity to come back here that I can. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about privacy today. And uh, we've been trying to protect our privacy ever since Adam uh, went off looking for a fig leaf. Uh, but according to conventional wisdom, technology has made us care less and less about it. And it's easy to see how someone might get an idea we trade our privacy for convenience in small ways every day. When I drove to the airport earlier this week, I, drove, uh, I hooked up my GPS just because it made it a lot easier to uh, make sure I wouldn't get lost. Um, uh, and uh, at the airport, uh, I um, uh, overheard uh, somebody who uh, just couldn't wait to tell everyone uh, to, uh, around, the uh, person on the phone, everybody who was listening, how he was recovering from his recent vasectomy. Uh, uh, and you've seen any episode of 24, you know that we probably all get captured on a piece of security footage when we walk into the hotel where we're now staying. And almost no one here would be surprised to find photos of himself on Facebook or above the law after a night out. 
especially uh, in the company of a well-known uh, judicial super hobby. Uh, I, I, I see some of you tweeting uh, right now about it. <laughs> Hello, David. Uh, Technology uh, has undoubtedly made it easier for others to figure out what's going on in our lives. And, um, um, and that means it's easier for the government to do the same thing. I've worried about this for quite some time, and I'm not the only one. Over 50 years ago, dissenting in a series of cases on undercover cops, government informants, and bugging, Justice Douglas warned us in the following terms. He has said, we are rapidly entering the age of no privacy where everyone is open to surveillance at all times, where there are no secrets from the government. More recently, CNN, NPR, and Scientific American all published stories on the coming end of privacy. Not to be outdone, 2020 ran a segment on the death of privacy. Time sported a cover just a couple of months ago which read, everything about you is being tracked. Get over it. And the CEO of Google sniffed, uh, if you have something you wouldn't want anyone to know, maybe you shouldn't be doing it in the first place. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, for one, can't accept the idea that technology has killed all expectations of privacy. And I'd like to make three points here today. First, technology that erodes our privacy often escapes criticism only because so few people are aware of uh, that it exists. and. Uh, un uh, until it's too late to do anything about it. Second, we actually expect technology to increase our privacy far more than is con uh, conventionally recognized. And third, it is possible to preserve a robust right to privacy uh, in uh, the current age of technology. But that effort will depend on educated citizens, legislative action, and on courts willing to rethink some of current Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. Cato has long defended the right to privacy, and I'm honored to be discussing with it with you here tonight. Now, here's the vicious cycle that worries many of us. First, a private company creates some hot new product that everyone picks up, like a cell phone or a GPS device or smartphone. Uh, or maybe a piece of software, uh, or a software lo uh, or a supermarket loyalty card. The company uses the technology to collect information of its on its customers. Now, doing so is perfectly constitutional because the company isn't a state actor. But soon the government finds out about it and asks for the information, or just uses the technology itself to start monitoring itself. Uh, and all of this happens without most of us having any clue of what's going on. The government finally uses what's discovered against you in court, and when you object, it says, you didn't have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Uh, after all, the technology is in general use and reveals information that you've already shared with uh, a third party or sometimes with many third parties. Now, private companies are constantly collecting information without our knowing about it. Take cell phones. Almost 90% of Americans own them, and I'd be surprised if there's anyone here who doesn't have a cell phone. Probably be easier if I ask people to raise their hands if you have more than one cell phone. Uh, I think I'd get more hands. Yeah, there we go. Um, uh, but how often do you consider um, uh, that they can be used to pinpoint exactly where you are at all times? If you have a smartphone with a camera, 
then the phone will encode your location every time you take a picture. So let's say you visit the grandkids and take a bunch of uh, incredibly cute photos and you're so proud of them, uh, you decide to put them online where a bunch of creeps can view them. Uh, uh, at that point, you've not only given them the picture of the kids, but if they go into the metadata, they can find out exactly where they live uh, by finding the GPS information. But now let's say you've got an older dumb phone like I do. Uh, your carrier still knows uh, where you are and where you've been. This is because your phone constantly announces your location by pinging the nearest uh, uh, cell tower. Uh, and this, this phone company can also get your location by pinging your phone. Uh, picks up a phone number and says, where is uh, this phone? And can ping you and find out. Now, between uh, September 2008 and October 2009, Sprint Nextel pinged its customers on behalf of the police, on behalf of law enforcement, more than 8 million times. It sold the service. The company eventually, uh, this has got to be so such a lucrative business, it uh, uh, established a web portal where police could just go in uh, and self-serve. They would put in the uh, phone number of a uh, Nextel customer and be able to ping it and find out where that person is. Um, as Judge uh, Ginsburg, uh, uh, which you've heard was Cato's first Simon lecture, pointed out in a recent opinion, a person who knows all of another's travels can deduce whether he's a weekly churchgoer, a heavy drinker, a regular at the gym, an unfaithful husband, an outpatient receiving medical treatment, uh, an associate of particular individuals or political groups, and not just one such fact about a person, but all such facts. I must say we'll all be in trouble if the authorities decide to ping our uh, cell phones tonight, they'll finally have discovered that right-wing conspiracy that they've been looking for. <laughs> now, there's been very little outcry about cell phone tracking, and it's not because we don't expect information that can be collected from our phones uh, to remain private. What's going on is that most people simply don't realize that they're carrying a tracking device whenever they carry a phone. Uh, Judge Slovater made exactly this point in a recent Third Circuit opinion. She said, it is unlikely that cell phone customers are aware that cell phone providers collect and store historical location information. Therefore, when a cell phone maker, uh, user makes a call, there's no indication that the user, uh, to the user that he's making a call, that, uh, that making the call will also locate the caller. When a cell phone user receives a call, he hasn't voluntarily exposed anything at all. Uh, this is the case, uh, of course, with every time we buy products that transmit information about us uh, without giving us fair warning, like a pair of underwear from Walmart. A Wall Street Journal recently reported that the superstore plans to start attaching small trackable RFID or RFID tags to individual pieces of clothing in order to keep tra tabs on the company's inventory. One county in California has already started uh, implanting RFID chips in school uniforms to track preschoolers. They are in credit cards, passports, and even some ticket stubs. Soon they'll be in all customer loyalty cards and driver's licenses, and so we'll be transmitting um, uh, treasure trove of information every time we walk into a store or drive down the highway. Uh, smart electrical meters are another worry. In 2009, the federal government invested billions of dollars to develop a smart grid that will provide detailed information about home energy consumption. Like cell phones and RFID chips, 
The technology transmits a large cache of personal information about activities within the home. Uh, let's say Bruce's wife is out of town, uh, but the beta shows there are two cell phones uh, plugged in and a curling iron. Oh no, wait, I it's not a curling iron, it's, it's an electric shaver. Um, uh, Sonia McNeil, Sonia, are you here? Uh, Sonia McNeil is a um, um, uh, very perceptive, uh, um, wrote, uh, is a law student at Harvard. She wrote a very perceptive article about the privacy implications of power grid technology. I was hoping she would, uh, she said she was coming, and um, I was going to suggest that you s if you see Sonia, you get uh, to send you a copy of her article because it's really quite interesting about how your usage of electricity in your home will tell people exactly what you're up to. Uh, our use of these new technologies doesn't signal uh, that we're less interested in privacy. The idea of the government monitoring our whereabouts, our habits, our acquaintances, and our interests still creeps most of us out, I think all of us. Uh, we often just don't know what's going on until it's too late. It's like one of those nightmares where you suddenly uh, realize you've been walking around naked and people are stopping and staring at you. Of course, sometimes we do understand that the new technology threatens our privacy. We may get an important phone call in a public place, and uh, we really know it's private, but we decide we got to take the call and we go ahead and talk anyway, even though we know other people might overhear us. Or we uh, use a supermarket loyalty card, and we do it because we get a little bit of uh, uh, discount on certain products, and even though we know that Ralph's or Safeway is tracking exactly what we're buying. Examples like these are often trotted out as proof that we really don't uh, care about privacy anymore. But this overlooks how we use technology to control what others can learn about us. Uh, not so long ago were the days when, uh, when you made a credit card purchase, uh, the store uh, made a carbon copy of your credit card uh, and uh, kept that information. Um, I still remember uh, handling a case not so many years ago of Mr. A guy by the name of Belisario, who made it his business to go to the trash can of the gas station where he worked, and he would fish out the carbon um, uh, copies, and um, uh, he used the data imprinted on them to make uh, charges to those accounts. This is no longer possible, and that's because that kind of information no longer goes on uh, paper or carbon copies that can be kept but are sent uh, electronically through the uh, internet uh, in an encoded form. And remember when someone was able to listen while Prince Charles and Camilla uh, Parker Bowles had a naughty conversation on their cell phones back in 1989? Uh, that, unfortunately, that can never happen anymore. Uh, uh, too bad, really. Uh, when, when reporters uh, from News of the World found a way to access voicemail accounts, of unsuspecting people, uh, um, the, the, everybody was really outraged about it, and it became an uh, international scandal. We all secure the information in our phones, computers, and online accounts by keeping them behind a series of passwords. Other times, we use technology to make it difficult for others to know where we are and what we're doing. For example, we can make calls from our cell phones and make it look like we're calling from the office, well, we're really, really at home watching 24 uh, with our feet stack, uh, on a stack of briefs. Uh, <laughs> perhaps the most important protection we've developed on this uh, is online anonymity, 
which allows us to keep private many activities that otherwise uh, uh, that previously used to be public. You used to have to stand in line to buy uh, a can of uh, uh, extra strength Rogaine or a container of proper, uh, preparation age. Uh, and we'd have to wonder whether the checkout person was uh, giving you a friendly smile or sniggering at you. Uh, you can now have those things delivered in a, uh, in a uh, discrete package uh, with just a few clicks on eBay. Uh, books. Uh, used to be you to have to go pick up books in the store. People would, uh, could see what you're reading. No more. You can now download them to your Nook or Kindle and uh, uh, nobody will even notice what you're reading if you're on a plane. They can't read the spine of the book because there's no spine to read. And like the authors of the Federalist Papers, we can engage in political debate without revealing our true identities. Technology has made it easier to conduct our business behind avatars, screen names, and secondary email addresses. Of course, this online activity generates information that could be linked back to us. Sites like Amazon and Netflix keep a record of which pages you viewed in order to help recommend things to you in the future, uh, or maybe to sell your, uh, your contact information to uh, purveyors of targeted advertising. But we go to these pages with the expectation that this is all done by machines, by algorithms, and that there isn't really a human being there tracking our activities. Um, and here's what Google explains about this. It's important to know that our scanning and indexing procedures are 100% automated and involve no human interaction. Now, having a machine know your habits and using the information to provide you with products somehow seems a lot less intrusive than having some employee at Google reading your emails and tracking information and then deciding that, uh, uh, oh, you need a local divorce lawyer and maybe a subscription to the advocate. Uh, <laughs> now, the public... The public has fiercely protested similar violations of anonymity. Uh, take, a, uh, take, a uh, uh, take a response to the way Facebook has pushed the envelope from time to time. In 2007, the site launched an online system called Beacon that tracked user activity on particular sites, such as NewYorkTimes.com and Fandango.com. Uh, comment on a story or buy a movie ticket on uh, uh, and Facebook would instantly send the information to your friends and relatives or your various contacts. Um, now, this seems like a good idea, uh, but people found that it wasn't such a great feature when they started uh, shopping for Christmas. People started son, uh, suddenly saying, oh my God, why is my best friend wearing those uh, diamond earrings that my boyfriend bought online? Okay, all sorts of problems. <laughs> Uh, faced tens of thousands of people protesting and, class, uh, and uh, the prospects of a class action lawsuit, Facebook eventually scrapped Beacon. Uh, just last year, Facebook caused an uproar when it switched many items on users' profiles from private to public. Facebook again had to cut back on what information it made public and to simplify its controls. It turns out there are more than 2 million people that have joined a Facebook group called Millions Against Facebook's Privacy Policies and Layout Design. So you have to join Facebook to be able to join this group. Um, in a recent survey conducted by researchers at Berkeley and Penn, about 90% of the under 35 crowd agreed that there should be a law requiring websites and advertising companies to delete all stored information about them. A majority of the sample reported being more concerned about privacy issues than they were five years ago. 
So what can we conclude from all of this? I think it's fair to say that privacy is not dead as an ideal. People still crave it and expect it, despite the inroads made by technology. In many ways, people expect more privacy as a result of technology and feel resentful and angry when they learn that technology has betrayed them. At the same time, it's clear that people are willing to trade quite a bit of privacy for a little bit of convenience. No one here, suspect, I suspect, is going to stop carrying a cell phone or even that second cell phone, even though we fully, we're fully aware it's tracing our location just about every moment of the day. Now, the government is perfectly happy to take advantage of our devil's bargain by dipping into available stores of information about us, and it will also create databases of its own to keep track of our movements and habits in an effort to solve past crimes and deter future crimes. Indeed, immediately after 9-11, much blame was laid on the FBI and other law enforcement agencies for failure to uncover the criminal conspiracy before it had a chance to achieve its nefarious goals. One might say that Americans are a bit schizophrenic or maybe hypocritical on this regard. We resent it bitterly when the government snoops around in our lives, but we're highly critical when it fails to detect criminal activity by monitoring would-be criminals and terrorists. But how is the government going to figure out who the terrorists are unless it studies the habits of a lot of ordinary people so it can spot their unusual behavior? In a very real sense, the government can't watch out for terrorists among us unless it keeps an eye on all of us. And this brings us to the Fourth Amendment, which provides that people shall be secure in their homes, papers, and effects. As originally conceived and interpreted for most of our history, this was a protection against invasion of property. If the government wanted to enter our homes or read our papers or examine our things, it had to comply with the requirements of the Fourth Amendment. This all worked pretty well so long as life unfolded in, a in the concrete spaces of the physical world. After all, you couldn't read my diary or business records without entering the building where they were stored and you, without actually physically getting a hold of them, uh, of the notebook or the ledger and, 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 doing, you know, and reading what, what's in there. Now this all changed with the advent of the telephone. In 1928, the Supreme Court got a case involving the criminal prosecution based on evidence obtained by tapping defendant's phone line. Officials, uh, police never entered his home or office. Instead, they climbed the telephone pole in front of the house and just uh, tapped the lines. The Supreme Court made short work of the case. The police didn't commit a trespass on the defendant's property and thus did not invade any interest protected by the Fourth Amendment. Now, th this didn't sit well with Justice Brandeis, who almost 40 years earlier had co-authored a highly influential article in the Harvard Law Review entitled The Right to Privacy. It continues to be one of the most frequently cited law review articles of all time. Now, Justice um, Brandeis dissented in Olmstead, the wiretapping case. He argued that the police had violated defendants' right to privacy by listening to his private phone conversation. In effect, Brandeis was urging the Supreme Court to jettison static concepts of property rights as a benchmark for the Fourth Amendment. Instead, he argued the Fourth Amendment protects the right to be left alone. Under his view, the Fourth Amendment didn't stop at the front door of our houses or businesses. 
nor was it limited to gaining physical access to the content of communications. Rather, Brandeis argued the Fourth Amendment protected an intangible concept of personal autonomy that defends us against much more than physical invasion of our property rights. If Justice Brandeis' 1928 dissent has a surprisingly modern ring to it, it's because the idea he planted took root and eventually became the Fourth Amendment as we know it today. In 1967, the Supreme Court decided Katz versus the United States, which involved uh, the police taping of a phone conversation. Katz was uh, uh, in a phone booth uh, making illegal bets, and the police were on to him. So they placed a tape recorder on the outside of the booth and managed to record Katz's half of the telephone call. The government argued that it had fully complied with Olmstead, so the taping was just fine. But in a world of ubiquitous telephones, teletypes, telegraphs, tiny microphones, and tape recorders, justices were no longer willing to limit the Fourth Amendment to invasions of property rights. Instead, the court held that the police violated Katz's Fourth Amendment rights because he had a reasonable expectation of privacy when he closed the door of the phone booth. Katz overruled Olmsted and discarded the property-based foundation on which it rested. In its place came a new standard. The Fourth Amendment protects an individual reasonable expectation of privacy. The, uh, the uh, protection extends to whatever places and communication an individual can reasonably expect to keep private. Now, this uh, standard has three important features, one good, one sec uh, second so-so, and the third pretty bad. The first is that the standard comports much more with the modern way of life. In a world where people communicate electronically, travel, uh, travel extensively by public transport, and stay in places that are not their own homes, the new standards uh, better reflect the values of the Fourth Amendment. The not-so-good feature is that the boundaries of the new standard aren't as well-defined uh, as uh, property rights. It's often hard to know in advance whether a particular invasion of privacy is also a constitutional violation. This leaves both the government and the public uncertain about their respective rights. They have to, w they have to wait for the courts to tell them afterwards whether someone's rights were violated. And the issue often arises after the police have seized highly incriminating evidence, so that finding constitutional violation very likely means a guilty guy will walk. So the incentive is to find that the police didn't conduct an illegal search. At least that's the sort of the pull. Now, the worst aspect of the new regime, however, is tied up with the word reasonable. The courts will not protect an individual's expectation of privacy if it's not reasonable. And how do you determine whether something is reasonable? The test is whether we, as a society, recognize the privacy interests as one worthy of protection. And when it comes to privacy, what you and others in society think and do has a profound effect on my rights. The fact that I consider certain conduct to be private is of little consequence if most people act like it's not. The scope of my right to privacy thus depends on common expectations which are shaped by the actions and attitudes of everyone else. Now let's say cats were decided today. What would the Supreme Court say? Judges and justices live in the world and understand how it works. Today, there are no public spaces set aside for having phone conversations, 
So people converse on the phone just about anywhere, anytime, and usually in an extra loud tone of voice. At the airport, at the grocery store, in the doctor's office, in restaurants, and even in movie theaters. Um, would the court really say that a guy standing on a street corner shouting into his cell phone had a reasonable expectation of privacy? You know, I suspect not. Uh, they would say that people in general didn't value privacy very much when it came to phone conversation, and therefore phone communications aren't private. Now, I'm not too worried that the Supreme Court will overrule CATS. I think um, uh, once it held that phone communications are private, I think it will stick with it for a good long time. But we've come a long ways from CATS, and most of our communications these days uh, aren't uh, just by phone. Uh, they are by email, by text message, by Facebook post, by tweet, by Gchat, uh, and Skype, and who knows what's next. We no longer keep diaries locked away uh, with a key and hidden under a floorboard in our homes. We keep them on a server somewhere in the cloud or on a laptop or on an iPhone. The world is changing very rapidly, and what is a really reasonable expectation of privacy when it comes to newer kinds of te technology is still very much in flux. And it is there that privacy seems to be least respected as a value. Many modern pr practices seem to suggest that people are not interested in privacy. People blog about their sexual exploits. They post immodest pictures of themselves on social media sites. They appear on shows like Jerry Springer and air their dirty laundry. They discuss intimate subjects within full hearing of a room full of people. They, comp uh, they promiscuously disclose their activities on emails and tweets. Of course, not everybody may be doing this. In fact, my suspicion is that it's really a minority, perhaps a small minority. But they set the bar for the rest of us because they have a disproportionate impact on our perception of what is reasonable uh, in expecting privacy. To understand why, imagine that of a group of 100 people, 90 guard their privacy jealously, while 10 are fairly exhibitionistic. You would know right away that there were 10 who didn't care about their privacy because you'd hear them shouting out in airports and uh, posting uh, blogs and so on, but you'd know a lot less about the other 90. Unless you knew there were 90 a priori, you would have no way of knowing what their practices were of how, or how many there were. So the 10 visible ones would exert a disproportionate influence on our perception of people's preferences. And what we think, and what we think is a prevailing view defines a zone of privacy we can reasonably expect for our purposes um, uh, uh, under the Fourth Amendment. Remember that we are all tied together at the ankle so that your view of what you wish to preserve more, uh, that you wish to preserve more privacy than the society at large will make little difference because idiosyncratic views are perforce not considered reasonable. So is there any way to prevent further erosion in our privacy and perhaps gain back some of the ground we've lost? I want to propose a three-part program for doing so. The first part is for an education campaign that will make people aware that privacy is a fragile and sh a shared resources, and that failure to respect and enforce privacy boundaries by even a few will erode the privacy of all of us. We've had any number of such education campaigns in the last few years, and they have changed many aspects of our lives. It wasn't so long ago, it was perfectly acceptable to smoke in all manner of private and public places, 
But as we become aware of the dangers of smoking, it started to disappear from airplanes and restaurants, bars, and music events. Our eating habits have changed as we consume less fat and more nutritious foods. We recycle, uh, we wear helmets and seat belts. Some of these changes have come about as a result of legislation, but the legislation itself was the result of changing perceptions and attitudes. Now, I propose that everyone listening to my remarks and those who will read them uh, uh, in the future in the printed form make an effort to object to behavior that erodes privacy and help educate others to its dangers. Uh, I've made it my mission to start staring at people who talk, uh, talk loudly in their cell phones in public. Uh, I nod when they say something positive and laugh when they say something that sounds funny. <laughs> I give them a thumbs up when they say something exciting. In general, I try to communicate to them that I am part of their conversation. <laughs> which I am, because they made me part of their conversation by bringing me into it. Now, there are many such techniques for alerting people when they are committing a uh, self-invasion of privacy and thereby eroding everybody else's privacy as well. Uh, leave a message on somebody's Facebook wall, object to obnoxious blog posts, and let people know why you are doing it. Not that you object to the content, but you object to the fact that it is eroding all of our privacy rights. Spread the word and let people know that this kind of behavior is destructive and will only make it easier for the government to spy on all of us. Now the second step is, um, uh, involves the government. We give, up, uh, uh, we give up much by way of privacy, especially in dealing with electronic devices, because we're simply not aware of the privacy implications uh, of much of the technology we use. Who really understood when we first started using cell phones that we're really carrying uh, tracking devices that, uh, and that every step we went uh, uh, from the minute we got a cell phone is recorded somewhere in a uh, phone company's database and can be retrieved by the government. Or who knew about the ability to track our movements in the internet when we first started web surfing? Or about GPS metadata, GPS metadata and photographs? Or about the fact that the ARFID embedded on our fast track device, right? You get a fast track device because you don't have to stop at the toll booth. Well, that offer can be read uh, in all sorts of places, in all sorts of intersections, and the government is putting in read offer readers uh, in, uh, all over the place. Um, so if you have a fast-track device, you're pinging not just, uh, not just a tool booth, but um, whenever the government wants to know where you are. Many electronic devices, from smartphones and fast-tracks to internet browsers and electronic meters, have, uh, uh, electric meters have huge privacy implications that we know very little about. We're often sold on the convenience and ease of using them, but are told nothing about what we're giving up by way of privacy by embracing the new technology. But it's much harder to give up technology uh, once you've started using it, it's become part of your life, and then you find out, oh, wait a minute, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm carrying a tracking device. Um, at the time to learn about the privacy implications is at the time we first start adopting it. Now, I'm always reluctant to suggest more government regulation, and uh, it's really very rare for me to do so. I believe there is an important value in having individuals make informed decisions, and I think the government can help by adopting standards for how breaches of privacy are to be disclosed, 
and mandating the disclosures as an, uh, easily in an easily accessible way before the new device is uh, bought uh, 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 and put into use by us. Um, doing so will not only help us make informed choices, it will also set up a competition among manufacturers to give us devices that eliminate or minimize the privacy implications. Currently, there is no such incentive. Finally, the courts must take a far more realistic view of what is a reasonable expectation of privacy. Right now, the standard mode of analysis is that if you know, knowingly expose information to third parties, you can have no reasonable expectation of privacy. So if you have a pile of cash and hide it in your mattress, it's private and the government needs probable cause and probably a warrant. Uh, in order to get into your house and open up your mattress uh, to find out how much money you have. But if you deposit the money with a bank, you have no constitutional right to have the information kept private. That's because you disclosed to the bank. Or if the phone company keeps records of calls you made and received, then you have knowingly disclosed to a third party whom you are calling, how? By dialing the phone number, and um, that information is not protected by the Fourth Amendment. Much of this case law traces its roots to a case by the name of uh, United States versus Hoffa, the famed president of the Teamsters, who one day disappeared and never was heard from again, um, unless he's in the audience. <laughs> we always look for Jimmy Hoffa. Anyway, before his disappearance, he was prosecuted and convicted of jury tampering based in part on evidence adduced against him by an informa informant who was introduced by the government for the purpose of spying uh, on uh, Hoffa's activities. According to the Hoffa majority, the risk of being overheard by an eavesdropper or betrayed by an informer or deceived as to the identity of one of with whom one deals is probably inherent in the conditions of human society. It is the kind of risk we necessarily assume whenever we speak. It, it was that case, incidentally, where Justice Douglas uh, made his plea for, because uh, uh, the case also involved wiretapping, uh, 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 that I read at the beginning of my talk, uh, his plea about uh, diminishing or uh, uh, disappearing right of privacy. Now, this strikes me as an extraordinarily broad rationale for what it means to give up one's right to privacy. If speaking to friends, putting money in a bank account, or dialing and receiving telephone calls routed through a phone company waives the priv uh, privacy of information so disclosed, then very little indeed can remain private in a world that is rapidly becoming more electronically interconnected. The courts, and this means the Supreme Court, must reconsider the rationale of Hoffa in similar cases. Living in an inter interconnected world cannot be the basis for concluding that we lack an expectation of privacy as to information we disclose to third parties as part of daily living. If the courts continue to apply this rationale, then pretty much nothing will be private and the CAT standard will become as unworkable as the Olmstead trespass standard before it. Fortunately, I think it's not too late to turn back the clock on the privacy implications of most modern technology. The Supreme Court expressed itself willing to listen in the Quan case from last term, where Justice Kennedy's opinion cautioned that the court must proceed with care when considering the whole concept of privacy expectations in communications made on electronic equipment. The judiciary risks error by elaborating too fully on the Fourth Amendment implications of emerging technology before its role in society has become clear. 
So the Supreme Court will listen, but we must do our share by becoming aware of the privacy implications of many of the things we do, and by starting to impose a measure of discipline on ourselves and those around us to ensure that the idea of a reasonable expectation of privacy retains some real meaning. Thank you very much.